for those who are coming in, if you can pick up a clicker, uh, you'll be able to engage with the audience response system. If we have more people than are, there are clickers, I may ask you to share a clicker. So if you want to uh, talk with a, f- a friend about things, if it's not as familiar to you, feel free to do that. We'll start in about one minute. Hey, Martha. Good. I was going to see if all the seats were taken. I would not stay here and be your spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be very good simple to see you. today. You <laughs> I'm doing well. I keep reading Judy's uh, mission moments. <laughs> good, good. She'll be, she'll be pleased to hear that. <laughs> okay, well, let's begin. It's uh, 8 o'clock and uh, beginning of a new day. So uh, why don't we have a prayer just to uh, start our morning off and uh, get our minds in in a good uh, place to learn. Lord, thank you for the new day. All things are new with you, and you make us new. Thank you for that. Thank you for waking us up, for drawing us in to learn, to be people who love you in our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help us as we ponder this morning to be alert to your instruction more than mine. And bless this time, this conference together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this, uh, this morning we're going to be going through uh, some relatively simple cases. These are not complicated. I, I deliberately avoided the obscure, uh, the uh, Things that I, I enjoy talking about, but they're not uh, as germane to people who are in, involved in missions. And um, so we're going to use your audience response clickers as we go through the cases. Um, see my. Uh, You find a spot there. You'll be needing to look at the screen closely um, as we go through the pictures. I don't have any significant financial disclosures if, uh, that I need to tell you about. Um, and I do want to mention just some, uh, a few learning objectives for you this morning. These are the ones that are in your uh, book. Uh, those who are coming in, if you want to come up here and get an uh, audience clicker, you're welcome to do that. Um, But here's the things we're going to try to do. We're going to try to learn five basic groups of parasites. And just so I make sure I don't forget this one, I want to give them to you right now. I use the hand to remind myself of the parasites. The thumb is the protozoa. These are single-celled organisms, and they are very common causes of diseases. Malaria would be an example of that. Okay? So protozoa, single-celled. Then you have... Three sets of worms, so the three middle fingers are the worms. The first finger is the round worms. The next two are flat worms. This one is a segmented flat worm. We call them, anybody know what we call the segmented flat worms in common lingo? Tapeworms. Yeah, these are tapeworms. And then we have the non-segmented flat worms, which we call flukes. Those are so we have nematodes, uh, uh, cestodes, and trematodes, but these are 
commonly called just roundworms, tapeworms, and flukes. And then the last group is called ectoparasites. That means parasites that are on your skin. Okay? So, I hope I have accomplished my first goal. If you can repeat that back to me. <laughs> Uh, the next thing we're going to do is list uh, and talk about several uh, types of uh, parasitic diseases, the presentations. These will be very short case presentations, so you'll just want to look at them. Come on in. There's, there's, there are pictures over here, so you'll be able to see on both sides if you want to pick up a clicker as you come by here. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll go through that. And the last thing I want to mention, which I, I described some of this last year. I don't know how many of you were here last year, but it's become an increasing passion of mine to understand uh, parasites in the context of a larger uh, creation of God. And it's really been fascinating. Now, cause, so I, I just want you to realize I'm not all against these guys that I'm talking about. So I, I'm finding that the, some of them are my friends. So... That's what we're going to do. I'm going to just briefly ask, are there any other major objectives that you would like to make sure I try to touch on? I may or may not be, know enough to tell you uh, the answers, but if there's some objective you want me to make sure I touch on, I'm giving you a chance. Anybody want to speak up? Yes. Um, I have, I've come across some people who say that they do regular like, purges of different types of parasites. I'm right. curious about what you Okay, so the question was about purges for parasites, and I, I think I can, I can talk a little bit about that um, uh, as we go along here. Other questions? Okay, so I'm going to encourage you. I'm not going to leave questions at the end. If something comes up for you, you want to talk about it as we go through, please just raise your hand, and I'll, I'll try to be responsive. If I don't see someone, point to them and say, oh, they're over there. There's a question, all right? Uh, I've used a lot of photos in this. They are not all mine. They, some of them belong to the University of Washington where I work. And so I'm not free to share this, uh, this slide set with you. But I hope you can absorb as much as possible during the presentation. Okay. Because my wife isn't here, I wanted to, uh, to sh uh, show a brief picture of her in Thailand. And this is a, uh, this is a zip line. And... Uh, I don't know if I can uh, get this to play here. Let's see if it clicks. There's Judy. <laughs> Screaming all the way. So she, she, we had fun there, and that was in Thailand with CMDA, uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association. Okay, I wanted you to use just to, as a practice session on your clickers. Tell me how much experience you have in parasitology. Did, did you, have, you have no experience? You've had field experience or you had a micro course or medical school? Kind of pick the highest level of training that you've had and let me see uh, what, you, what you've got. And I'm going to ask you to click quickly so we can, we're not going to waste a lot of time. Okay, so we have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, distribution here. And so what this means to me is, there are a few experts out there who've really got some field experience, and you want to know who those people are so that you can whisper in your ear. They'll, they'll know the answers right away. Okay, here's a, uh, just a school in western Kenya to remind us this isn't just about parasites. It's about people. People who dance and people who enjoy what they do. 
and we're trying to uh, think about their health. So this question of, of public health and what we've done in public health is, a, is an important one. Public health has probably had more impact on the global health than, than medical uh, interventions. Uh, they have done so much in terms of water and health uh, that, and this, this picture kind of uh, emphasizes that. Does anyone want to know what this picture is? It's just a, an increasingly uh, uh, obscure disease now. This is trichinosis. So, so people who used to get uh, these muscle cysts, now it's almost unheard of in, in developed countries because of public health measures. So what happened in that arena? We started, we worked with uh, nutrition, we worked with sanitation, clean water, uh, arthropod control and avoidance, reducing disease reservoirs and wearing shoes, and mass treatments. This is not uh, purging, but uh, other kinds of, of uh, actual medical treatments for parasites. What has happened in the U.S. is that we have basically annihilated parasites. Very, very few are, are still persisting, and those are, are very tenacious ones like, anybody want to mention few parasites that still exist in the U.S.? There are, there are several that are relatively common. Some of the roundworms, which ones? Pinworms, absolutely. Pinworms are still around. So what else? Ringworm is, of course, a ringworm is around, but it's not a parasite. That is, I've got Martha to, to confirm that that is a fungus infection. Yes? Trichomoniasis is still around. So vaginal trichomoniasis is still around and, and ubiquitous. Else? Anything else? Okay, so it just gives an example. There are a few parasites that have beat us so far. And actually, I want to make a case that... Uh, there are many parasites that are our friends, and we're just beginning to learn how important they are. They've been with us probably since the beginning of creation. So they were there, and they actually do some teamwork with us. This is a picture to show a, a, a symbiotic relationship or a commensal relationship. These birds get what from the buffalo, from the, from the water buffalo? The, the, they get some bugs. Yeah, they, they eat. They enjoy the bugs on the back of the water buffalo. And the water buffalo says, hey, thank you for eating the bugs on me. So they live in a symbiosis. And much of your microbiome, what we call the microbiome, the, the, the intestinal flora, the bacteria, and even the parasites we're learning are part of that life that is, is, is uh, shared life. One of the amazing discoveries of the last couple of years, the last five years, let's say, is that what we thought when we were culturing bacteria on uh, plates, that we could, we'd streak them out on a plate and find individual colonies of bacteria. And what we found out was the vast majority of bacteria cannot live by themselves. Most of them will just die because they're so dependent on the bacteria next to them. The parasites also play a role in this, and I'm going to try to convince you just briefly by looking at a couple articles. Now, this is called the hygiene hypothesis. This is a poster I thought was kind of interesting, the best way to strengthen your child's immune system. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that is or it isn't, but, 
the, certainly being around pets uh, exposes you to certain kind of animal parasites, most of which are not human parasites. So, so there, a parasite usually is, is relatively specific. We'll talk about some that are not. But uh, they, they, they can share uh, parasites with you that actually stimulate your immune system in some good ways. Here's a child from China I showed uh, uh, last year or a couple of years ago uh, from Doug Briggs, who works up in the, uh, up in the mountains near, uh, near Nepal. Uh, and this child lives with this herd of sheep. And so that child's immune system is, is really, in many ways, stronger than our immune system because of that environment. We've sterilized our environment to, uh, somewhat to our disadvantage. Now, I want to show you just a few articles. Forgive me. I, I'm, I'm an academic, so I have to convince people that this is not just made up. So, Trichurus suus is a pig whipworm. We have human whipworms, but this is the pig whipworm. It doesn't affect us. We, we don't get any disease from it. But if we give the protein antigens to people, we find that it dampens the allergic airway reactivity. That's asthma. So, we can diminish that by giving them that protein, without even the parasite, just the protein. Uh, last year, diantamoeba fragilis, which is a benign parasite, was studied in people who were returning from international travel with diarrhea. They looked at all kinds of parasites. They did chromosome analysis on it. And they found out that when people had diantamoeba fragilis, they actually had less diarrhea. So that was protective. So that's another kind of striking thing. This last week, computational biology did a fascinating look. They took 2,000-plus unique proteins that are allergens. And they said, let's, because they were aware that this thing about parasites and allergies was starting to become like a, like a, a, a locomotive. It's really coming on strong. They looked at 2,000-plus unique allergens in the U.S., and they said, let's, let's look at all the proteins that we know are produced by parasites. And what they came up with was that 2,400 of those 2,700 were parasite proteins. And so what that may, means is that when you are exposed to parasites early on in your life, those parasites actually train your immune system to say, hey, don't overreact to me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a friend. I'm a teacher. Don't, don't uh, uh, get too angry with me. Don't overreact, okay? Does that make sense? All right. So this is the last one here. Journal of Immunology this week. Understanding the multidirectional complex interactions among intestinal microbes, helminths, parasites, and the host immune system allows for a more holistic approach to probiotics and other things that are being developed right now. So we're looking at this and we're trying to understand it. My guess is that in the future, this may be part of your immunization program for young children. Give them a few small, benign parasites to train their immune system. That is speculation. Okay, we're going to get into some cases now. Who's the first critter on the screen? It's not scabies. It is lice. I heard somebody in this area here say lice. That's a human body louse. Okay, so just to get your minds going, you're going to have to 
uh, think about this. Okay, so there are three common complaints after international travel. There's more, of course. But the three most common complaints that people have are what? You want to guess when they come back from an international travel, they've been on a mission trip or whatever, they have three common complaints they come back to see a provider about. What are those three things? Itching, okay, I heard itching over here somewhere. That is going to be skin problems, all those skin problems, right? And then what was the another one? Diarrhea. Diarrhea and stomach problems, right? And then the last one? Cough is not as common as this one. Fever, yeah, okay, so here they are. Fever, abdominal complaints and diarrhea, and skin lesions. So what I'm going to talk to you about is those three things. I, I pretty much tried to eliminate. There's a whole bunch of neurological things. Some maybe would say the third, the fourth thing might be neurologic complaints, seizures, and those types of things. So these are what we're going to focus on today. So this is fever after international travel. A 56-year-old high school principal from Spokane, where I live, traveled to Sierra Leone. That, that might ring a bell. In West Africa last summer. Okay, he was working with orphans in uh, in Sierra Leone. He received appropriate pre-travel vaccinations and said he took his doxycycline precisely. He's a principal. Exactly as prescribed. He took every one. Ten days after returning home, he developed a high fever to 104 degrees and became very sick. Okay, we have two questions here. The most likely etiology for his fever is, and now you've got your clickers, you should be able to answer very quickly what you think, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to take very short time here because we'll see how much we can get through. Okay, I'm taking that. Let's see what people thought. Okay, so a little variety there. Um, there were a number of people who said malaria. We got about 43%, and then some Ebola some dengue, and some typhoid fever. Okay, so what people picked was a variety of things that the person was at risk for, right? So clearly at risk. But this is my first key message and only message on fever. If you travel to a malaria area and you come back with fever, you have malaria, malaria, malaria until proven otherwise. Okay, so that's, that's my first main message. And I'm, you have a whole session on malaria, so I'm really not going to spend a lot of time on malaria except for a few points. Here's a, a picture of a blood smear of malaria. This isn't this person's blood smear, but this is, uh, this is Plasmodium vivax. The, the principal had Plasmodium falciparum, which is the really bad one. Um, the main reason for failed malaria prophylaxis is which one of the following? So, in other words, we take medicine to prevent malaria. And there are, there are three types. We'll look at those three medications. But why do they fail? So, the principal said he took it exactly as prescribed. And so, he knows he, he wasn't messing around with that one. He knew what he was doing. And yet, it failed. So, what, what is, what's the reason for failure? <coughs> You click on your clickers. Okay, I'm, I'm taking that. Okay, so we got a variety of opinions here. That's very interesting. I, I like it when there's a variety of opinions. <laughs> so we can talk about them. So inappropriate prescriptions. Certainly that is possible. Uh, 
just as a note, if you ever have any questions, the CDC website for travel is a very wonderful website. You just look there, you go to cdc.gov slash travel, put in your country, and they'll tell you exactly what you're supposed to get. That's what most doctors do because they're not doing this every day. And I would do the same thing. So if somebody comes to me and says I'm traveling to some place uh, uh, in Africa, I want to go and look at that website and see what they recommend. There's basically three drugs. And most of the time people will get a pre prescription, but this might be partly the right answer when I tell you. Poor absorption due to diarrhea. First, people do get diarrhea. And they might have some malabsorption of their drug. It's not usually the main reason. Drug interactions is, uh, can occur. Uh, drug side effects, people may stop their medication. But here's the reason, not taking medications appropriately. That is the one reason. It happens in the military. It happens every time somebody travels and, you, and they tell you they took their malaria medicine. You have to ask Tell me exactly what you took and exactly when you started and exactly when you stopped. Because this principal did not take exactly what he needed, and it was not his fault. Okay, so I'm going to just say that the, the person who prescribed it actually did prescribe it slightly inappropriately. Okay, so here's the reason. When, when the mosquito bites... The malaria first goes through the bloodstream to the liver. And that in the liver, it hides for two weeks or so before it comes out into the blood. And in the liver, the malaria, most of the malaria medicines are not affecting that stage. Most of our malaria medicines, this may be difficult to see, are down here. Doxycycline is there. It only affects the blood stage. So if you tr stop treatment before that parasite has come out of the liver, then you are at risk. So the story of the principal, what happened with him, he was given a prescription that said, you know, you can start doxycycline basically just days before you leave. So mefloquine, you actually have to start two weeks before you leave for your trip. But doxycycline or tovaquone, proguanol, you can start right when you travel. But... Doxycycline, you have to continue for four weeks after you get back. That's to protect this stage. He had it for 10 days. The doctor didn't, apparently didn't read that fine print about that after travel doxycycline. So he ended up getting what uh, the, one of these parasites came out in the late stages. So uh, continue doxycycline for four weeks after leaving the endemic area. Okay, what advice would you provide about doxycycline? Here's just a few things to look at and think about what you talk to people about when, they're, uh, when they get doxycycline. Um, some of you don't have clickers over here, but uh, if you can share clickers, that'd be great. Just talk to each other, okay? Um, so, you see what you're going to talk to them about? Okay, so here they are. We're going to discuss birth control in women because occasionally there is an interaction with the estrogens and uh, there has been at least a, a, an insinuation that uh, these things can affect uh, birth control. Direct sunlight because of photosensitivity. And then uh, there can be secondary candidal infections because you've killed a number of uh, bacteria. Okay. And so we prevent malaria by using these medications for travel chemoprophylaxis, and then some other uh, things mostly about preventing mosquito bites. Okay.
So that's all I have on malaria, and I'm just going to have to keep hopping because I want to try to get through some skin and uh, stomach problems. So a scoutmaster from uh, Spokane Travels, uh, the, the director of a daycare in Squim, which is in western Washington, took his troop for a one-week camping trip in the Olympic Mountains, which you see here and which are very beautiful, in just southwest of the island, southwest of Seattle. Scoutmaster and two of his troops developed bloating and diarrhea two weeks later. Okay, you got the story? Okay. They do a stool specimen on him and his team, and they find this. And so what is the most likely diagnosis? Click your clickers. All right, we're going to take a vote. Okay, most of you got that right. That is Giardia. That's a classic story of Giardia. Giardia can be transmitted, especially people who go on camping trips. Still is persisting in the U.S., in even Washington State, uh, because it's carried by animals, so it's partly a zoonosis. Zoonosis meaning you can get a disease from animals. And does anybody want to say what the usual animal is for Giardia? Beaver fever, that's right. So beavers are one of the carriers for Giardia, and so they can spread that, and you, get, you pick it up in the, in the water when you're camping. Okay, um, here's the Giardia parasite. It has this ventral sucker here that attaches. I'm going to see if I can play this uh, little video to show him floating uh, around. They have a slow connection here. Okay, so we may end up having this is uh, looking like it's too slow a connection, but there it is. Can you see him swimming there? No. No. Oh, sorry. Well, I may not be able to get that up on the screen there. I, I, I was able to do that before. But anyway, he swims around just uh, looking to see if he can attach himself to the intestines. And this is where he ends up, attached to the small intestines. And they can literally line the small intestines. And if you look in back of these things, here are the, what are called the microvilli of the intestines. And those intestines can actually, the microvilli start to get worn down. And then they don't work as well. And that's why you get malabsorption of fat um, from the small intestine. That's what gives all the bloating and belching and foul-smelling stool. So Giardia is common and worse in very poverty uh, areas, uh, many poverty areas. It's a chronic infection if you get chronic infection, it can lead to malnutrition, retardation, and poor uh, cognitive development. So, yes, question. Um, we used to say that the gas that you produce after having Giardia smells like rotten eggs. That's a good description. So sulfur of rotten eggs is, a, is one of the descriptions of Giardia. Yeah. It can be other things, anything that causes malabsorption of fats. So if a person has pancreatitis, they'll get a similar kind of diarrhea. It's not usually acute. Okay, so sometimes there are late symptoms of Giardia. The most common thing I hear, yes? 
Wow, this is new. Oh, I see. That actually was the video is playing. Okay. Um, so, oops, let's see. Sorry, I missed up my slides here. So as, you, as people have Giardia, one of the, the common things that happens is that they get uh, diarrhea that persists after they've been treated. So uh, does anybody know why that is? Why do they con- continue having diarrhea? It's because of lactose intolerance. So what we tell people who get Giardia um, is that they should n- avoid milk products for at least four weeks after they've been treated. Okay, so that's uh, one of the uh, caveats. For four weeks, and it can actually last longer than that. And there's there's a few late com- uh, complications, which can include irritable bowel, and, and it's said that chronic fatigue can be associated even years later. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. Okay, so several children from the same family developed diarrhea after playing at a water park. 200 cases were later identified in the city. Stool culture and O&P, this is ova and parasites, were negative. So they did what they thought was appropriate. They did. They looked for bacterial etiologies and uh, parasites and didn't find any. But when they did an acid fast study, they did that. Okay, so here's your question. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this outbreak? Okay, let's see what people think. Okay, so we got, again, quite a a, a variety of ideas. Amoeba normally will show up on an ordinary ova and parasite test, but you could miss them. That's that's possible. Uh, Some guest hookworm, which certainly can cause diarrhea, uh, not usually uh, associated with a mass outbreak and not particularly associated with a water park. So the, the big clue here is the water park. Uh, so this is Cryptosperdium. And this in the U.S. is the most common, overwhelmingly the most common cause of diarrhea associated with water park or even freshwater exposures, either lakes or swimming pools, because Cryptosperdium is very resistant to chlorine. So it's one of the things to keep in mind. It easily happens. Uh, you know these fountains that uh, go in, in the parks and you see all the little kids running with their diapers on. Uh, yeah, that, that's where it comes from. So, All right, so here's the little parasites. They, they attach on the, this is the microvilli of the small intestine, and they can cause diarrhea. Usually a, a relatively limited diarrhea, except in a particular setting where it can be really bad, which is what? There's a certain group of patients who... who immunodeficiency, so people who have HIV, this is a bad problem for them. So this is the cryptosporidium attached. In a, this is a micro, uh, uh, microscopic or electron microscopy picture showing these little balloon-like structures attached to the intestines. Okay, so here's a medical student who traveled to Bolivia 
for medical relief work following an earthquake. Two weeks after arrival, she developed crampy abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea, and a low-grade fever. Stool cultures for bacterial pathogens are negative. So she goes to see someone. So we got that picture in our minds now? There it is, bloody diarrhea and some fever. Which of the following images demonstrates the pathogen? Now, this doesn't work. I didn't put this on your clickers. I just want you to kind of look at the pictures and see if you recognize it. Because in resource-limited areas, the only thing you may have is a smear or a wet prep. So you're going to have to, you have to learn a few parasites what they look like. But does anybody want to say what they think? Think about what you're going to guess. You can think to yourself. Okay, so here it is. The first one, this is the Giardia. This is the Cryptosporidium, and this is Entamoeba histolytica. C. C is the correct answer. Very good. <laughs> okay, I love it. I love the audience interaction here. It's just great. <laughs> okay, so Entamoeba histolytica. One of the interesting things about it is this amoeba likes to eat red blood cells. So as, it, as red blood cells get in the stool, you find the amoeba with the red blood cells in them. It's not a perfect, it's not like pathognomonic for um, Antamoeba histolytica, uh, but it's a very good clue. So if you find that, it's worth uh, making note of. Uh, here's what it does to the intestines, the, the large intestines. It makes what are called these shirt button lesions. And uh, these are superficial ulcerations all over the colon and uh, very classic amoebic colitis. Okay, so this is actually a case of a, of a person who uh, I was in contact with in March of this year. A 30-year-old female missionary with increasing abdominal cramps, nausea, mucousy diarrhea over two months. Uh, she's in Tanzania, as the title implies. Multiple, she, so she goes into a, to a doctor, and they do tests on her, and they say that she has um, giardia and amoeba. Now, one of the provisos I want you to take away here is not all amoeba are bad. <coughs> so, uh, Entamoeba histolytica is a bad one, but Entamoeba coli and many others are completely benign. So, what I don't know is, did they know the difference? Or did somebody just say it's amoeba? I don't know. But in any case, because you're not around, she actually was given a treatment course with metronidazole, 10 days of metronidazole, and got a little better, and then they said, well, let's try a second course, and we'll give you another medicine very similar to metronidazole, which is tinidazole. Both are effective against giardia and antamoeba histolytica. Well, again, she got better, but not completely. And the nausea and the irregular bowel movements persisted. Okay, are you, you got the picture in your mind? Okay. An abdominal parasite is identified in the ultrasound below. This might be a little bit tricky to see, but uh, does anybody recognize it? I see a smile there. Anybody got it? What it is? It's a very classic one, not an unusual one. I promised you I wasn't going to show you anything rare. So this is common, common, common. It's not a roundworm. 
Okay, see the little see the little things here? The little there's a there's something that looks like a Yeah. You all see it right here? Somebody this parasite is waving at you. Yeah, this is pregnancy. I heard somebody over here say pregnancy, so someone got right. So the the problem is that you know First trimester, a little nausea, some maybe some irregular bowel movements. That was a miss, right, until she was well into her pregnancy. It got confused with a pathogenic parasite, and this one was a parasite she loves, right? So, but we want to remember most of these drugs, we try to avoid the nitroimidazole drugs in the first trimester. They have some mutagenic uh, uh, effects that are proven with animals, okay? All right, here's a, a later complication of, of ambibiasis, which is, when you, someone want to call that out? What is this? this? Is a CT scan, and it shows a big hole in the liver. It's an amoebic liver abscess, right. So that's what this one is. Um, so the question is, which of the following is the most appropriate next step for management of that complication of, of amoebiasis. Look at it, and, and you, you can use your clickers here. Click in your answer. Is it percutaneous drainage? Check the head CT for cysts. Check diagnostic serology and treat with oral medication and surgical consult. Okay, let's see what we got. Oh, we got a lot of ideas. Okay, so here's the uh, thing. Percutaneous drainage for, for amoebic liver abscess is one of the rare abscesses that does not usually need to be drained. There's only rare occasions when that is useful now, uh, and it's when you think it's on the verge of rupture. You don't want it to rupture, but uh, most of the time it does not need to be drained. Uh, there's, it very, very rarely will go to other organs like the lungs and even occasionally to the brain, but wouldn't be an indication for doing a head CT. Here's the correct answer. Check diagnostic serology to make sure because by this time the diarrhea is gone. So this is a late complication of amoebic colitis. This probably happened a few weeks before. So the diarrhea is gone. Now they get upper quadrant abdominal pain and fever. And that says, okay, now you've got the amoebic liver abscess. So we just treat it. And the vast majority of those will resolve with uh, oral metronidazole would be usually the first line uh, treatment. Surgical consult, uh, not necessary. So here's the things we've talked about in the GI. These are our protozoa, our single-cell organisms, along with malaria. These are our GI protozoa. Entamoeba and Giardia give watery diarrhea. I mean, give, uh, give, all of these give diarrhea. This one gives bloody diarrhea, dysentery, and fever, and liver abscess. That's the thing that makes Entamoeba histolytica unique. Any questions at this point? Yes? Okay, so the question, how to avoid all this, most of these relate to what source? Water. It has to do with water, right. And so how do you, do, how do you avoid that? Uh, these, both of these, both Cryptosporidium and Giardia, are relatively chlorine resistant. So we suggest using either an iodine uh, preparation to help with your water and filtering your water is also useful. Many people will just say, I only drink bottled water. 
The part of the problem with that is that bottled water in developing countries may have come from the tap. It's a way they make money. And so just to be careful about uh, how you get your bottled water as well. Okay, so anemia in Kenya. We're going to keep uh, rolling on here. A 12-year-old boy uh, in Kenya presented with gradual onset progressive weakness, just really feeling terribly tired, had some mild diarrhea and was just not doing well, failure to thrive. He had no fever. And his lab shows that he has a hematocrit of less than 10, which is, is that low or is that high? Forget. That's very low. So somebody's helping us out here. That's very low. So normal hematocrit would be 40, 45 in that range. So really, really severely anemic, right? So what's highest on your differential? So here's a few options. Click on your clicker and see what you, what you think is most likely. Okay, everybody got their clicker in. Let's take those votes. Okay, so the, the majority, let's see, we almost got 50% who got this right. Somebody want to say why, somebody who guessed hookworm, tell us why they said that. The anemia. Somebody's talking there. I can't tell who. Uh, so anemia, and, and why do they get anemia? Why does, why does hookworm cause anemia? Somebody say just a little louder for me. It's just stuck onto the intestine and it is sucking blood. Hookworm is the vampire of the parasites. It is the vampire. It sucks, it sticks its teeth into the intestine and it sucks blood and it can suck a lot of blood. So in a young child who doesn't have malaria, malaria is another contributor, but it contributes by... Malaria causes anemia by, by hemolysis, so it breaks the red cells. So that's the way that one happens. Okay, so here's the hookworm ova in the stool. And very rarely you'll see this, uh, the, the rhabditiform larva there. And here's the hookworm selfie. You see the teeth? That's what, that's what sinks into the, and starts to suck blood. And you get these by the millions. Okay, so a child passes several large roundworms. Um, and this is the classic one because these, uh, the parents will come in and say, I saw it in the stool. It's a big one, you know, like that big. And or he coughed it up or he pulled it out of his nose. There's a variety of ways that they present. But it's always the same one. There's not any, any mistaking this one, Okay. So, treatment for this worm may help prevent which of the following? Okay, let's see what people think. Okay, so we got a couple answers here. Uh, Malnutrition... could be at least partly a legitimate answer, but the, the overwhelming most common complication from this uh, problem is intestinal obstruction. I had a, a video, again, I'm not going to play it because I don't want to have happen what happened last time, but, but there's a picture, a video, uh, which you can actually probably Google and find yourself, but of a surgeon just pulling these out by the, 
scores out of, a, out of an intestinal obstruction. So they, this is what happens, uh, particularly in young children. These, these worms just make a big ball in the intestine and basically cause uh, intestinal obstruction. Okay, so we'll skip that one. This parasite invades humans by which of the following routes? So that, that ascaris that you saw, how does it get in that body? How, where does it come from? Click your clicker. So the mosquito bite, eating poorly cooked pork, eating eggs in, from the soil, dog or cat feces, direct skin penetration. Okay, let's see what people think. Okay, we've got a variety of ideas here. The most common one was eating poorly cooked pork. Okay, so uh, let me just uh, play with that idea. What do people get from eating poorly cooked pork? There's really one main... Trichinosis. This would be related to trichinosis. And there's actually one other one. We're not going to go into it. But, the, but, but trichinosis would be one of the significant ones from, getting, from eating poorly cooked pork. It is not the route that Ascaris chose. So one quarter of you got the right answer. So those people uh, uh, are, are to be applauded right there. So what you're, this is, relates to being out, kids who play in the soil. The, the, the ova comes out into the, the soil. It grows there, it matures a little bit, and then comes back in the mouth through uh, contact with soil. The uh, direct penetration from the skin would be the hookworm. That would be an example of one of them that goes directly through the skin, but has a similar lifestyle. Okay, uh, here it is. You see the life cycle here that comes out of the person, sits in the stool, and then comes back in the mouth. A fairly simple life cycle. So what would be a major health way to kind of deal with this thing? What, what, would, what would you do if you had a community that had a problem with Ascaris? What would you do? You can talk to them about washing hands, but that, 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 that will be only partly successful because the kids are out in the soil all day. You know, they're, they're... What else? Latrines. 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 Yeah. If you go into a community and you start saying, let's build some latrines, and if you can get people to use those latrines, that's going to have a significant impact on both hookworm and ascaris. So those would be the major health venture. Uh, uh, this one I'm not even going to play too much with, but this is a, just as an example. All the ones we've done so far are the roundworms. So this is an example of the third group. It is a tapeworm. It is a flat worm that is segmented. There's, if you could look at this very closely, you see there's very thin lines across there where the proglottids are. And so this is called the broad tapeworm. It is Diphilobothrium latum, a fancy name. You may remember that one. Let's see how many can pull this one out. This parasite comes from eating poorly cooked what? The nice thing about the audience response clickers is nobody can say, oh, I got it wrong. You say, oh, I, that was me. I was one of the quarter that got it right. <laughs> okay, let's see what people think. Okay, so there was a variety of I, but there's a group here. Let's see how many of them. Fish. Diphilobothrum latum is the fish tapeworm. There are beef tapeworms and pork tapeworms too, which are quite common. 
Uh, but this is the fish tapeworm. Okay, let's keep rolling on here. A 43-year-old Ethiopian man with fatigue and abdominal pain and bloody urine. So what I'm trying to do is give you just a prototypical picture. And if you hold some of these prototypical pictures in your mind, maybe they'll come back to you. So this person presents. He's he's, he's an otherwise healthy guy. He has bright red blood in his urine for two months. He's got a little bit of stomach pain, no fever, chills, sweats. He left Ethiopia one year before. He has past history of some some amoebic dysentery and malaria. His exam is unremarkable. He doesn't even have any enlarged liver or spleen. But his urine does show that he's positive for blood. So he's he's making a good observation. And he's got a very mild anemia here. And, And some of his liver tests are slightly up. The AST and ALT are your, are your liver enzymes. And the chest x-ray is normal. All right? This is, when he goes to the urologist, the urologist does a biopsy of his bladder wall because he sees something. And when, he, and when the histopathology comes back, this is what they see, this thing right here. Okay? And it's got a little poker on the end of it here. So this organism is which one of the following? Very, very common organism, in, in especially in Africa and in Southeast Asia, different types. Uh, but this is a general question. Let's see what people said. Okay, most of you got that right. This is schistosomiasis. Does that say 10 minutes? Thank you. Uh, so... Uh, schistosomiasis, schistosoma hematobium, hema, hema meaning blood, right? Hematobium. I don't know where the tobium comes from, but hematobium comes, it, it goes to the bladder and causes bloody urine. It's, it's one of the most common causes of bloody urine in the world. So it's one worth remembering. And there's other types of schistosomiasis. I'm not going to try to go through all of those. Okay, so that was our... Uh, the schistosomiasis is our fluke. It's the flatworm that's not segmented. So we're, I'm just giving you one example. So here's the, here's the cercaria penetrating the skin. The, the, the uh, schistosomiasis is acquired when kids get into water and then these cercaria swim. They've been living in a snail and then they swim through the skin and then come up to a particular part of the body wherever they are, are accustomed to be. All right, so let's do a few skin lesions. We've got 10 minutes left. Um, here's a, a person who uh, has a linear eruption that began one week after a beach vacation in Jamaica. And she says, this thing seems to be moving. I think it's a worm, All right? It seems to be moving uh, several centimeters every day. And here's another picture of somebody who has, a, has a, another similar kind of thing with lines on their foot. Okay, and these things are very itchy uh, and, and relatively common. I see, I see someone with this. I'm sure Martha Householder is here. She, she sees a lot of travelers, and so this is relatively common. What is this thing? Anybody call it out? It's not pinworm, no. 
pinworm is not going to invade. No takers? Okay, so this is cutaneous larva migrans, and this is caused by the dog and cat hookworm. So I told you that a lot of these parasites are unique to their own host. So in human hookworm, the hookworm enters the skin, and then it migrates up and goes through the lungs and goes down into the intestine. If a dog or cat hookworm gets into a person, it gets lost. It says, I don't know where to go. And it starts crawling around on the skin and says, I, I, I must be in the wrong house. So it, it just doesn't know where to go, and it causes cutaneous larval migraines. And these things will usually die in a very short order. Here's another example of one. These are very, very classic. There's not much that mimics that. So cutaneous larva migrants. Here's another one that's slightly different. And this one looks a lot like it, but you see this, this uh, child has it right around the anus. And then these lines that are going away from the anus. This, this picture over here is not quite as good. I'm not sure why. Um, but... You can see the lines, they, they kind of migrate off like this. So this one is just a little bit different uh, parasite. Anybody want to take a guess on this one? Use your clickers. This is a little bit tricky, but very similar to cutaneous larval migrants. But this one, and this is a kind of cutaneous larval migrants, but it's very specific. It's not the dog and cat. Uh, okay, let's see what people said. Okay, so a lot of this is about Trichurus. And Trichurus is one of the most common causes of itchy butt. Right? So itchy butt, Trichurus is the whipworm. And that whipworm comes out and causes a lot of itchy butt. But it doesn't, Trichurus does not penetrate the skin. So it doesn't cause those migrations. For the 10% right here, who picked Strongyloides. They were right. Strongyloides is a little roundworm. It looks like hookworm, but it is much more uh, serious, and it can live for decades in the intestine. Just recycles. It comes down, penetrates around the anus, and then comes back up and keeps going. So that a, has a very sustained life cycle. And if somebody gets on immune-suppressive drugs like steroids, this thing can go crazy. So it's a very, very serious one. It actually can kill people uh, if you don't recognize it as a, as a risk. Okay, uh, so skin ulcers. These are just a couple examples of two people, one who traveled to Belize and one who traveled to Guatemala. They, they got a little pimple, a little spot. They didn't think much of it at the end of the mission trip. Uh, it, was, it was gradually enlarging. So they come back. They see several people. They get some antibiotics. But they, but they never seem to get better. So here's a picture of one on the leg. And here's a picture of another one, 30-year-old woman who traveled to Guatemala. And then this happens to be fairly common in Central and South America. Um, but this gradually enlarging ulcer doesn't respond to antibiotics. So if you do a skin biopsy, you see some... Things here, these little round things here. So this is most, the most likely diagnosis is. Got a few choices there. Just click your choice. We've got just five minutes left. Okay, let's see what people say. 
Okay, so most people got this one right. This is cutaneous leishmaniasis, a very serious disease. It has, in, in its skin form, it's not, it's not as serious. It usually will resolve on its own. But it can affect uh, the, it's called visceral leishmaniasis of the liver and the spleen. So the kids with a big, big belly like this has a giant liver and spleen. Uh, in, this is in northern Kenya. That's a bad form of, of leishmaniasis. And it's transmitted by, here's a tick, reduvid bug, a mosquito, and this is the sandfly. So this is a sandfly disease. Uh, little tiny flies. This little fly doesn't get through clothing. So all of these lesions are on exposed areas. So it's very unusual to get them in a non-exposed area, like on the buttocks, for instance, uh, depending on how you dress. <laughs> so here's the three types. Visceral and then cutaneous. This, this is a kind of an unusual picture of cutaneous, but there's mucocutaneous, which can erode the nose, called the spundia in South America. Very common, uh, giving these kinds of ulcers. Okay, so last few minutes on the uh, last uh, couple things that are very common. Here's a child from Sudan riding on the back of his sister. He has really, really rough fingers here, very itchy, scaly. Here's another child from El Salvador. You see these papular lesions between the fingers. All right, got the picture there? That's scabies. That's, our, that's a very, very common problem around the world uh, worth remembering. Here's a, here's a case I showed uh, either a year ago or two years ago, I can't remember, that most people didn't get. And I thought it was worth just kind of a quick recap in the last few minutes. 34-year-old AIDS patient presented with weight loss, anemia, low-grade fevers, and a rash that was all over on his hands, his feet, uh, his scalp, everywhere. It had been gradually worsening for several months. He had nail dystrophy, which just means bumpy nails. Uh, and his CD4, which is very, very low, at 9. So he's got very advanced AIDS. He starts on uh, antiretroviral therapy. Uh, and this is what his rash looks like. It's just very extensive scaling rash all over. Uh, it kind of spares his palms. <coughs> this is his legs. You can see, just see the flakes just all over on the bed. Everywhere. So this person got some topical steroids. They thought it was seborrheic dermatitis. He, he was said to be refractory because they, didn't, they thought he was non-compliant with his medications. He got even a bacteremia from a, from a streptococcus enterococcus at one point. Uh, <clears throat> the most likely diagnosis is which one of the following? I'm just going to see how, how, if you can get this, and then we'll do one last case. Click your clicker. Okay, let's see what people said. Whoa, lots of ideas. Okay, so a leprosy came up as an as a idea. Leprosy is a, a tuberculosis organism, Mycobacterium leprae. <coughs> and it can certainly affect the skin. It does not usually give this diffuse scaling rash. It tends to be more focused. Uh, desensitized areas of the skin. This is, for the 9% who got it right, 
when you did a scraping, this is what you found, these little egg casings and these little poop balls. And this critter, there were tons of these critters. What is this? This is scabies. This is scabies Christosa. So this is just extensive scabies in an immune-suppressed person. A very, very bad disease. It can, and, and, and in fact, the doctor who was caring for this person got scabies from him. The, the problem of a missed diagnosis. Okay, I'm going to show you one last case in the last minute here. Um, oh, this is a parasite on the eyelashes. What is that one? Pickers. Okay, so that's a body louse. This turns out to be the pubic louse. So whoever these people here were, they got it right. The, the eyelash is the pubic louse. I won't explain that. <laughs> Okay, oh, here's a, this is a, just a worm being removed, uh, myiasis. Um, here's the one I wanted to do. This is for you, Martha. Parasitic vaginitis. Uh, a 40-year-old lady uh, who is very well educated, has three children. One child was diagnosed with pinworms. She's a very meticulous lady, and she was just d totally distraught that her child had pinworms. Uh, and then, so the physician sees them. The whole family's treated with albendazole. Mother returns with children three times for retreatment because of concerns about persistent worms. The mother develops persistent vaginal irritation and discharge. She reports that worms are seen in, in, from her vaginal discharge. Multiple occasions, vaginal scrapings examined at home on her son's microscope. So she's really, she's going after this one. Many specimens presented to the physician for examination. This is a classic presentation of, and this is our last one. We'll end here. Click your answer. Classic presentation of. Okay, let's see what people said. Okay, this is correct. This is parasitophobia. And this is a very, very bad disease. I saw uh, a woman with this uh, just recently. This is her right forearm. Just ripped to shreds, picking out parasites out of the skin, a lesion on her leg, and many, many specimens. So when you see that, that's a uh, scary uh, psychiatric diagnosis and even a suicide risk. Thank you for playing the game. God bless. Please, please make sure that the clickers get back up into the black case, if you would.